Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I have recorded three full seasons of a podcast. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I have recorded three full seasons of a podcast. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today, we celebrate our favorite beer from the past year while reviewing our favorite papers of the past year. So we we lovingly call this piece the mug of honor because we enjoy looking back at the beers that we've sampled over the course of this year uh, and reflecting and comparing and kind of noting which one we really enjoyed the most or wanted to point out to you listeners as maybe something worth giving another look. And so uh, this year in particular is noteworthy because I want to tip my hat to our beer vizier, Aaron Matthew, because he has guided us through trying some beers that I wouldn't have chosen off the shelf and from other parts of the area uh, and from other parts of the country. And also we drank, we drank a bunch of seasonals. So there was a lot of different things that we got to try this year. Yeah. I'm looking forward to uh, his increased influence in our beer choices in the future. What was your winner of season three? What was your favorite pour this year, Mr. L? So I couldn't believe looking back at our beer list this year, I was certain that these beers were years and years ago because that has been the season this has felt for me. Um, But there was one that jumped right off the list and I'm going to pick it first. I'm going to pick it proudly because it's head and shoulders above most of the others as far as what I just enjoyed drinking. And that was Brandyland. I want to put it up on my shelf. That's my favorite too. Brandyland was my top choice. Uh, Liked those, uh, uh, apple brandy casks, aged in apple brandy casks, and that cinnamon, the sadness, it's a winter seasonal from Boulevard, so we can only get it a fraction of the year, which means I sadly cannot be drinking it then. So instead, I am popping open, this is my go-to kind of standard favorite, I am drinking 1554 from New Belgium Brewing. Uh, and I am drinking my standard favorite, Dragon's Milk Bourbon Barrel Aged Stout from the New Holland Brewing Company. So what are we doing today, Judge? This month, we'll have our year in review. We're looking back at the papers that impacted our thinking and our practice. We'll also reflect on our personal journey as educators during an academic year unlike any other. Note, we had a recording failure this month. We apologize our episode won't include all the topics we wanted. We're sorry about that. Let's get started. Yeah, uh, this the season finale this is a summer episode, and it's great. It, these feel like uh, truly summertime episodes to me because I don't have to spend four hours deeply digesting education research in the morning. I just review the ones I've already read and decide which ones I thought were the most impactful or important for me. So it was a pleasure preparing this one. 
Yeah, this is sometimes we we talk a lot about the importance of reflection in our practice. And so this is this is the month when we're not going to talk about new literature, uh, but we're going to kind of reflect on our time as podcasters and our time as educators uh, and kind of see what additional value we can get out, what kind of direction we might want to take for the coming year. Uh, and I need this this year in particular because I've spent most of this past year uh, in, a, in a job transition. And so that's another piece of this whole um, upheaval or sense of time dilation for me is just Things are a lot different for me now than they were a year ago. Reflection's important. Let's do it. So for our first segment, we're going to, you know, acknowledge the fact that this is a, a, a podcast that discusses research. And we're going to discuss our favorite uh, papers from the past and uh, identify what those are and how they may have affected us or how we think that they uh, or why they were important to us. I've got three that I've identified. My top three of the past season. Ralph, what about you? What have you got? Uh, I don't have three. I, I remember that you did a list last year, uh, and and I decided that I was still not going to do a list. So I'm going to highlight. I'm going to highlight a favorite, but I don't have many. Well, then let me go first. Uh, my third pick for this this season was very recent. It was on our last episode, episode 41. It was the paper Trying to Survive, Black Male Students' Understanding of the Role of Race and Racism in the School-to-Prison Pipeline by Grace and Nelson in the Leadership and, uh, in Leadership and Policy in Schools. I looked back at every piece of literature that we recorded. That's 22 primary citations. And um, this one, in addition to just being topical and relevant in, in social awareness currently, as a hot topic, um, you know, uh, social justice has been a an, a part of my um, eye towards education and uh, uh, role in it as an educator um, from my pre-service days. And so, recognizing that we have um, systemic demographic educational injustices that are occurring and that they're being documented documented, and that they are um, real and that you as a practitioner, me as a practitioner, can directly do things in a classroom to change that experience for a student uh, is really powerful. And when I was uh, choosing these papers, I was choosing them in terms of uh, a practitioner's perspective. What about my behaviors in the classrooms can be informed directly by these papers? And so that calls to my consciousness, be aware of your students, their background, the disparate, the disparate rather, the, the changes in the experiences that they have compared to each other, and check your bias, double check that what you're choosing to do is fair and don't contribute to systemic practices that discriminate uh, amongst your students. Uh, that's an important call to action. It should be a should in all of our hearts. It's really important to me. Uh, and so I put it on my list. What I actually, what I found myself uh, using from that discussion over the course of the 
several weeks since we've taped it. It, it only came out not even a week ago, but uh, we taped it several weeks ago, uh, was referencing a lot of the references uh, that Dr. Grace made in her paper, uh, in their paper, right? She co-authored it with uh, Dr. Nelson, if I remember correctly. Uh, but they, uh, they, there's such a thorough background of literature, of statistics, and of societal context uh, that there's a lot of understanding to be gleaned about the complexity of the problem. And so being able, uh, I felt like it equipped me and gave me some more material uh, to share to help people understand uh, the breadth and the persist, the pernicious nature of the problems uh, to try and move us to greater and more impactful action. It's a good read, and it's a it's a good read for anybody because you know some of these um, you know we all have these different perspectives and we all have these different ways to access the the national narrative that is being unfolded and being told and 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 is developing and ongoing. Um, but the stories shared in this paper illustrate some really concrete examples of bias and systemic discrimination that are told in a way that the perspective is very accessible. And so understanding that in this context, bias and discrimination occurs systemically and how well it's communicated here can, I think, help scaffold our understanding to how it could occur systemically in other domains of our society. So it kind of helps open windows into looking out into that world. Uh, and it's, it's very... Um, since we have an education perspective, it's easy for us to understand it in this context, and then it allows us to apply that understanding to greater contexts. So it's, a, it's an important paper for lots of reasons. Uh, as an aside, uh, she has she she reengaged. So uh, a piece of what what we do every month is I always reach out to uh, the authors as I am able, right in the in the medium that they participate, so whether it be on social media or just directly via email. Um, but I always make them aware that we've discussed their papers and that we invite any feedback or or criticism or elaboration they may have to offer. Uh, and Dr. Grace provided us the paper so we could read it in the first place, and then enthusiastically responded when I made her aware that we discussed it like six weeks later. Um, uh, she was like, yeah, I'll give it a listen. I'll give you some feedback. Sounds great. Glad you're talking about it. Um, and she doesn't have to do that. And a lot of researchers don't do that. Um, and so I just, it really fills my heart uh, when res researchers uh, choose to engage with practitioners and choose to have those conversations because they have many demands on their time. And I know that uh, they don't always get uh, the, the space and support for that piece of the work, of the connections. And so I just really appreciate when they make the time for it. And she absolutely um, has been. So I, I just, it makes me joyful that she's so supportive of us. Uh, yeah, that's all we got to say about number three, which seems small, but we of course did a whole episode on it. So I guess we don't, we don't have to, yeah, that was episode 41. So if this segment is enticing to you, you can backtrack to episode 41. Uh, my number two on my list is what if, what if only what can be counted will count a critical examination of making educational practice scientific from Ing Stoll and Martinez out of the Teachers College record. Uh, this paper was about uh, an analysis of a school district that employed an MTSS, multi-tiered um, system of supports, uh, which 
of course, uh, at face value, looks excellent. Like, hey, if kids are doing something poorly, uh, assess what's going on, give them additional supports, scaffold them to uh, uh, success, right? Seems great. But in this, in this district, this program was essentially a, a scripted, prescribed program. Uh, the assessments were scheduled, what happened to the students and what assessments uh, uh, they, what treatments they got were based on assessment scores. And it was very, very scripted. And in the professional development to help the teachers implement this, they were encouraged to decrease their professional autonomy and increase their reliance on prescripted, scripted, um, uh, scheduled um, interventions and and lessons. And they found that that was that was that was that was not good for the students or the teachers in that district to participate in that system. And to me, um, I decided to put this as number two over number three because a lot of the things that are occurring uh, because of um, uh, racial disparity in the education system are occurring because teachers are not taking personal responsibility, not grasping per professional autonomy, and making the right calls for the students in their classroom based on who those students are. They're instead they're, they're instead ceding their professional responsibility and professional leverage and professional power to common schedules, common curricular maps, common assessments, common um, outcome goals, which means involves common uh, behavior outcome treatments. Um, we are dehumanizing and deprofessionalizing the active teacher. If you are teaching, if you are in a, a system or a location that encourages you to go by the book, by the script, by the calendar. Uniformity of teaching only works if we have uniformity of students, which will never occur in humanity. It has never occurred and it will never occur. So it's wrong. So I think some of the racial disparity problems we have are promoted, supported, and complicated by like um, zero tolerance policies and other endeavors that remove the judicial nature of teaching out of the teacher's hands. You chose my one. This was this 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 was the paper that I was going to highlight as the one that I think is the most impactful. And the and the reason for that is um, my shift to a role that has such a substantial focus on research um, over the course of this year, and especially as I continue to accrue training and identity as a quantitative researcher, um, I find myself more and more pushing a pushing back on, yeah, I, I'm trained in quantitative methods. Don't use them here. Don't use them this way. Don't do that thing. Um, because they there are so many ways that we can misuse uh, those sorts of tools. And this paper, I think, laid out a really compelling example of what that looks like when it really goes wrong. Um, and so this is an instance where we've got, um, we've got data that are that are runaway proxies and we're overly concerned with a number instead of the thing that it's supposed to be measuring. We're over concerned with following heuristics for decisions rather than exercising our judgment to make decisions based on the context. And the paper really lays out uh, some what I think are obviously wrong decisions that leaders and administrators in the district were forcing 
upon teachers and instructional folks um, based on these scripts, these inflexible, rigid um, decision guidelines to make some really poor decisions that everybody working in the context um, was identifying as wrong and inappropriate. Uh, and so kind of forcing the the rough general view on each individual case is an inappropriate use of data, uh, frankly. And so, and I think that that was a major argument of the paper and they laid it out really eloquently. And so it really has, um, has crystallized and reemphasized and focused um, my time making sure that as I'm designing studies or as I'm advising school districts, uh, that I need to be judicious about how we promote the use of data and how we talk about its role within education, because um, it can be very easy for those things to become runaway, um, runaway and beyond anything that would look like a reasonable use of those tools. And so, so for me, it was personally really useful um, for just what my operations, what my day-to-day professional uh, role has become. And so I think about it a lot. I talk about it a lot. And that's kind of my, my metric for deciding what I reference here is what's the paper that I talk about the most? What's the paper that I go back and pull up the most often? Uh, and this is one of them. This is a conversation I find myself having a lot these days. Yeah, this paper did a good job of recognizing um, that uh, when you employ a system that is scripted for for teachers to execute uh, and you dissuade them from, quote, using their feelings about their students or their their job, that that's that's a dehumanizing prospect. That's actually pretty problematic. We care about our job because we have feelings. And to take our saying we need to suppress our feelings or deny those feelings in order to do our job appropriately is not really uh, healthy. Uh, and we have to. And furthermore, if we were if we um, deny that our emotions exist, uh, what we're doing is we're also ta- denying ourselves an opportunity to face our own biases. Uh, we have to acknowledge that we have emotions in order to check our biases to become better teachers. You don't become uh, objective by denying that uh, emotional tendencies exist. We approach objectivity by recognizing that our emotional uh, tendencies exist and then develop awareness and mechanisms for navigating them in a healthy, progressive fashion. Uh, And so when we surrender ourselves to the script We're dehumanizing ourselves, which is going to make us less effective as teachers since building relationships with students is one of the greatest indicators of student academic success. Uh, You've triggered something in my mind that really takes me to there's also this kind of this condescending attitude of some folks, especially folks who uh, really pin their careers to data-driven decisions, uh, who suggest that quantitative methods are somehow superior to qualitative methods, or alternatively, as sort of a corollary, uh, to say that objectivity is superior to subjectivity. uh, And I want to just flatly reject that perspective. Uh, And I particularly want to lay out a couple of examples that are in a book that I read a while back uh, by Daniel Kahneman called Thinking Fast and Slow. 
And there's some really compelling examples for uh, some emotional decisions that we can make that are based on heuristics shaped by our evolutionary history. And we need to manage those so we can be thoughtful to, again, dismantle our biases and have a more um, equitable pattern of behaviors in the place where we work. But there's also on the other side of expertise for somebody who has spent a career um, gaining experience and developing perspective in a particular profession or in a particular context, uh, there's this other side of that emotional interpretation. Emotions give us an opportunity to process really complex situations really quickly. And it's in a different way than we do when we think about it in what I'm going to air quotes call the objective way, you know, the intentional, thoughtful cognition way of thinking about things. And there's a story that gets told in that book of a veteran uh, uh, fire chief. Uh, who is at like a big fire, like a four alarm, a six alarm fire. And this building is burning and they, they, the perspective of the problem is that they think that they can get the fire subdued enough that they can salvage the building when it's done as opposed to letting it burn to ash and be a total loss. And so they're really putting all their resources into fighting the fire as hard as they can as opposed to containing it. And so they've, they've got a lot of personnel in the building and the chief is, is, is involved and is helping and he's, he's near, the, near the entrance, like carrying a hose or something like that but he's, he's, he's like involved in the effort. And all of a sudden, with, with no discernible signals that anybody around could identify, the chief they stopped what he was doing and made the call into the radio said, evacuate the building right now, like right this second. Everybody out, drop what you're doing, drop your equipment, get out right now. Uh, and people were kind of confused, but he used his chief voice and was like, this is not a discussion, leave the building this second. And so everybody followed orders. And about uh, a few moments later, everybody evacuated and a massive backdraft erupted out of the building and the building collapsed. Uh, the building dropped, hit the ground. Uh, and, and so everybody who was working in the building kind of did a moment where they all turned and looked at the chief as the gravity of how many lives he had just saved uh, weighed in on everybody. And so the, the news crews were debriefing him about this afterwards. He was giving some interviews uh, and he was explicitly asked, they said, how did you make that decision? Like what, how did, how did you decide that it was time to evacuate? What did you see? And the chief said, I have no idea. He said, I, I, have n I couldn't point to a single thing I saw. He said, I just, in the moment we were doing, and I just, this, this, this feeling washed over me. He's like, I've seen backdrafts before. I've seen buildings collapse. And I just, it wasn't like a, oh, I think this might happen. It was a dead set certainty I know how this story is going to play out and I must act right now. And so I did. And I can't tell you one reason that I, I can't tell you one thing I saw. And that's advanced as an example of some of that, how the emotional interpretation can lead to some insights that we can't, we can't pick apart, that we can't pick apart in, in active cognition. And so drawing the line between where is that professional emotional judgment come up? versus where what's a you know what's an inappropriate heuristic that we're using that's a debate and this and this exact example gets used in that discussion but to say that pr that kind of emotional judgment can't lead to superior decision making especially in complex situations where judgment is really important like i would argue educational contexts uh, is to overlook a huge portion of what makes us human and what makes us uh, capable decision makers especially in moment to moment quickly developing situations and so uh, I firmly push back on even that general condescending perspective of folks who say data should be it, objectivity should be it. Uh, you're wrong. That's you're wrong. I'm in a state of disequilibrium, and that's just good for me, and I'm not ready to share it. So, yeah, that's what I'm at, and it, it's about this second. It's about the second paper. Um, you know, uh, 
it does beg question because you know having idealized procedures is not fundamentally flawed but imposing procedures i think what happens is we fail to recognize the diversity of one classroom to another and when we oversimplify our materials that we're working with, which in this case would be our students, when we oversimplify them and say students are essentially um, essentially the same, yeah, then we have big problems. Uh, we need to be we need to recognize what ideal uh, multi-tiered system of supports could look like, and then from that position, use our perception, judgment, and experience to make the call regarding how much deviation from this ideal is the situation I'm in right now. Because we, we are never all, we are never in the ideal situation. There is always air resistance. So you, if you're going to put a rocket in space, you're going to have to put the air resistance in the problem. And I think the 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 spirit of we should study measure and use um you know research supported uh procedures in the classroom i have this whole podcast is predicated on that very statement yeah we should and then we should use our judgment to see what accommodations we have to make because of the students that we know in our classroom and it's a tough thing well, and that's why the and I was I was mad at the time when we taped when we taped the segment about that paper because uh, I lay most of the blame at the feet of the consultants for exactly the reason that you describe of uh, there's nothing inherently wrong with the product. It's the implementation that suggests that this data is the end all be all and that we should ignore and suppress and undermine um, and humiliate uh, the positions and perspectives of the teachers in the name of compliance and service to this overall product. Yeah. Yeah. It was fidelity. Yeah. Uh, that's really so, so dishearteningly inappropriate uh, where if we have, as you say, if we have this general framework and then we support our teachers and, uh, and figure out how to make it fit in each individual context, it could be fine. It, it could be fine. I mean, that's, that's why I do what I do. Right. Like that. Yeah. So it's the, it's the implementation piece. So if any of this blabbering uh, inspired you, that was uh, from episode 35. Go back, listen to that, uh, read that paper. Uh, we recommend it. We think it's a really good, um, good piece of literature uh, supporting uh, teacher autonomy and teacher judgment because what happens when you take it away? This is what happens when you take it away. Uh, well, you've said dehumanizing a couple of times, so I think I could make a wager as to what your number one is. Uh, and you'd be wrong, though that that paper is probably my number four, which I decided I didn't put on the list. The dehumanize, uh, you know, uh, it was it was well, it was it was within the um, that paper. Since you mentioned it, I don't have it uh, queued up for for immediate uh, citation or reference, but it was about um, online pedagogy practices. Uh, that uh, we need to approach to avoid dehumanization of some of our students. It's an important paper. I was, I, it's important to me. But I think that the dehumanization piece is 
present in all three of my top three. So we're talking about dehumanizing uh, black students in our schools. That was my third choice. We're talking about dehumanizing teachers directly uh, in addition to students in the second choice. And my third one, uh, I think it's in here too, but it's more complex. And I think that uh, now that I look at this, this may feel a little bit like rooting for your favorite football team to win the Super Bowl, and then they do. Uh, but I still think it's related to the other three, and I still think that um, it's fundamental to addressing the needs not just of students, but also of teachers. Uh, and that is the paper, A National Experiment Reveals Where a Growth Mindset Improves Achievement, written by David Yeager, Paul Hanselman, Gregory Walton, Jared Murray, Robert Crosno, Chandra Mueller, Elizabeth Tipton, Barbara Schneider, Chris Hollerman, Cynthia Hinoja, David Ponesca, Carissa Romero, Kate Flint, Alice Roberts, Jill Trott, Ronald Iaken, Jenny Bontempo, Sophia Man Yang, Carlos Carvajilo, Richard Hahn, Mayatori Gopalan, Priktak Mahatri, Ronald Ferguson, uh, the Queen of Grit, Angela L. Duckwork, and the Empress of Mindset herself, Carol S. Dweck. That's my number one pick. From just a research design standpoint, that is the obvious choice because that's the number one thing I remember is just how ironclad, rock solid, on this ground, I will build my church. This study was. Um, it It was the last thing to fall if you start throwing rocks. Um, they did a, they did a lot. Yeah, man. <laughs> like so there were there's been lots of earlier uh, growth mindset um, growth mindset research about teaching kids that uh, growth requires struggle. They can learn. Their effort matters. They will become what they imagine based on the input that they put in, the effort that they put into growth. That research had been done, but there were critiques about the design. There were critiques about um, the stats. There were critiques about how it came out. And so they said, okay, okay, we'll have all of these people do it. We'll have, we'll have over 6,000 kids involved. We will do this right. And they did it right. And they showed that if you teach kids that their effort yields growth, then they more often choose effort and growth. And if I'm going to, that's to me so fundamental. It's not about what script do I execute. It's not about what can some kids learn and other kids can't. It's about what effort are you going to encourage in your kids. Do it always. To me, if, if you, if you, it's the number one for me. And it reinforces that lesson uh, because if you want to get better, you're going to have to put work in. Uh, but if you put work in, you're going to get better. So I, I just, I can't, I can't walk away from it. I can't escape it. It's my number one. Well, and I think for me, the other side of that coin is just as, if not more important, thinking about the kinds of experiences I've asked of my students over the years uh, in high school and in at university level, I ask them to do some hard stuff, uh, some things that really challenge them. We fail more often than we succeed because I really want to put, I want to live at the front edge of the zone of proximal development. That's where I want to be. Um, 
because that's the, that's the choice that I make as an educator. But that means that we struggle a lot. And so not only that uh, if we want to grow, we have to choose struggle. But when we encounter struggle, how do we respond to that struggle? What does that mean for ourselves? And what does that mean for what we should do next? And what emotions does it even evoke for us? And I think about that, especially as my as my daughters continue to age, because they're in a really essential window uh, for shaping some of that perception and some of that attitude. And so even just modeling, because um, that was that was one of the big pieces of the paper was teach them about growth mindset. It wasn't a spend three years training. The, the, it was a tiny, tiny piece of training that they offered to the students uh, to help to say, be like, hey, if you work at stuff, you can get better at it. Okay, we're done here. Like that, that was, it was not very much, but just that little bit, had a had a, a a relatively huge impact on reduced dropout rate by five yeah, percent, which like we should be so lucky to have that kind of an impact from such a tiny imp- uh, intervention. Yeah, it was like it was like two 20 minute lessons. We're talking about 40 minutes of a student's life reduces dropout rate by five percent, 40 minutes. And so I think about I think about as an instructor uh, that forty minutes of instruction needs to be paired with the modeling and the and the the momentary messages that we send on a day to day and week to week basis about what struggling means. And so it's a you know if I'm trying to get if I'm trying to get a package open and I curse and throw it in the trash when I can't get it open in the first moment, that's not that's not going to cause somebody to drop out probably, but it does have a subtle impact on what it says for what struggling means. It doesn't mean if I'm trying to, if I'm trying to pronounce a word and I get it wrong the first time. And so I just mutter something self-deprecating and I move on. That sends a message about what that struggling is and what it should be. And if students perceive me as an expert and I, as an expert still don't have to struggle for things and I can actively avoid struggle, that tells them something about what the path towards expertise might look like. And so I think that the other side of that coin is equally important of what we show and what we communicate to students about how they engage with the struggle when they inevitably encounter it is just as important as when they choose growth for themselves, how do they engage with it? I think both of those pieces are essential. And this study really showed that broadly that can be an impactful piece, even when we're thinking about little bitty interactions. My third paper focuses on the disenfranchisement of black male students in our public education system in the United States. And as a consequence of that, there is an increased rate of dropout for those students. This is a paper that directly addresses some of that complexity. If I tell that student, your effort matters, that is me building a connection with that student, building a relationship with a student, and empowering their efficacy and agency within a system that is otherwise disenfranchising them. Number two, if I'm in a system that says you don't have time to teach them growth mindset because you've got to get through this math curriculum by the end of the year, my second paper says, no, don't do that. You be the teacher, exert your autonomy, and recognize what your students need and provide that for them, regardless of any idealized scripts that may have been prepared. Meet the needs of your students. And how can we do that? Well, we can do that by telling them that their effort matters, giving them opportunities for their effort to matter, and then giving them the uh, opportunities to progress after setbacks. When they have failed, how can they progress? When they have challenges, how can they progress? 
when they have obstacles, how can they progress? If we can do this for them, so many problems in our education system can be mitigated or just overcome. Listen, plan, and play. So for our second segment, we're stepping away from the research and looking at ourselves. Uh, how have we changed and how do we feel about ourselves as practitioners, maybe in light of the research, in light of the world that we live in, in light of each other, in light of ourselves, our families, our life situations? How? So this is a year in review still, but this time it's about the practitioner and it's about, you know, uh, me as a teacher. How is that? So, uh you know, uh, first topic, how did our job change this year? And I think that we are living in 2020 and there are some very obvious ways that our job has changed. This pandemic has uh, just sent a total earth earthquakes, just biggest earthquakes, destroying the foundation of what we know about education um, routines. How has my job changed this year in... Um, uh, April and May, I taught entirely from my basement. That's where I was doing my teaching. I was using uh, recorded lectures, Zoom lectures. Uh, I, I, did, um, I did over 70 hours of phone lecture, uh, uh, phone interviews as final exams. That is just absolutely entirely a paradigm shift from anything I've ever done before. Um, I, I, it was, it was crazy. Um, all my papers were digitally submitted. I read, commented, reviewed, returned digital. And that may not be, um, that there may be many practitioners that that's been their modus operandi for quite some time, but it was different for me. Uh, and so, uh, I just blew up my routine entirely in order to accommodate this brave new world we live in. Um, it was terrible while I was in it. Um, I felt only the stress of disequilibrium and never any sense of accomplishment or, um, uh, growth or, or, or progress. I didn't feel any of that. And I didn't feel any of it until the very, very end. I don't, we haven't shared this story on air yet, have we? No, probably not. At the very, very, very last final that I gave over the phone, and these ranged from 10-minute to 50-minute interviews, uh, depending on the student. And this student told me at the end that they said, man, when we were switching over to digital learning, I was really afraid for this class, Mr. Woodruff, because you basically hate the, the modern technological communication age. You hate social media, you hate online interfacing, you hate all of these things. And I thought this was gonna be terrible. But it turns out that you had the Zoom lectures where you 
asked us and you put us on the spot and you required us to participate and we got to see how other people dealt with that participation and the choices that they made um and then when it was our turn we could use that information to improve our responses that was really good you recorded those lectures so that we could see them whenever we needed to so even if we missed a lecture we could still catch it you still had your tutorial videos online available to us and then your tests, your online interviews were the format that we practiced in the lectures. So I wasn't scared of the format, even though the questions were challenging. I actually thought that you had, and he said this, the best online experience of all of the teachers that I had. And that was the very last student I talked to. Like it was 8.30 PM on a Friday, the last week of school, because that's when we scheduled his appointment. And I just felt like after he said that, I breathed out this giant, massive sigh of relief. Like I hadn't done garbage for my kids my last two months. Um, it gave me permission to be okay with myself. And it was really important that I got that kind of feedback because none of my other students said that. And this student, this student, um, this student earned a C in my course. And he was, he was excited and proud of that C. Uh, because he knew that it reflected his understanding of this really abstract complex material. We're talking about collegiate level molecular biology. So it really was, it was, it was intense. Uh, and he was proud and he was happy and he was, he was at peace with what he earned because he knew that that was an accurate reflection of his understanding of the material that, that, that he was struggling with. And the fact that I got such a great, great review from a student that outside the situation, someone might say, well, that's not a very good student. He got a C. I knew otherwise, he knew otherwise, and we were able to celebrate his growth and understanding together uh, as he navigated the priorities of his own life. And I navigated the priorities of my teaching. The, so this past, this past school year, um, my, my position at the University of Kansas was uh, eliminated, uh, as was my entire academic unit. And so uh, that happened. That happened not long after the season started. That happened um, maybe a couple months into this season, into the into the academic year. And so I knew that I wasn't going to have a job anymore at that place um, in in June. Uh, so I had a long time to be able to find what was going to be next. And so a lot of the episodes were taping. I was still teaching. I you know during the during the shift this spring, I still taught my course with um, the largest class I ever taught. Um, in in research methods was this semester this past semester because of course it was um, we had a great mixture of students from different majors we had students in the program we had students um, from other programs it was the 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 courses becoming the things I really wanted it to be um, in a sense of it was a really mixed group of a lot of different folks wanting a lot of different um, wanting the experience of that course in a lot of different um, roles in the rest of their professional training and so that was good. I mean, it's just good for people to see other people um, in a classroom. And so I was excited to, you know, commit to everyone. We're going to find ways to make this valuable. We're going to find ways to do the kinds of work you want to be doing. And then the curtain drops because we can't be in person anymore. And that's a big deal when you've got to be in a lab to be doing collegiate level research. And so uh, it was really, really hard to try and continue to get them um experiences that I felt like were valuable and were of the the caliber that I felt like I owed them. 
um, from you know the trust and commitments that they'd made in the first part of that semester. And all the while I'm job hunting um, because I don't, I don't know what's gonna be next for that. Um, and so that was really tough. Um, and I feel really proud that that last semester got to be something um, a lot closer to what I wanted to be for that course. And I hope uh, the best for uh, those students, you know, those students can continue to be doing their work and I hope that they stay in touch. I know some of them listen to this show and I want you all to know that we're still here um, and that I, I still want to be supportive of all that. But um, then I had an opportunity to come through. And so now I'm a, I'm a full-time researcher at Gould Evans Education. Um, and they're, uh, that's an architectural firm and they do all sorts of architecture, but one, one aspect of their practice, um, is in education and designing education spaces. And my research has been on educational spaces and it's specifically, um, differences of experience between different groups who have membership in different subgroups. Um, so do, um, men and women enroll differently or experience these spaces differently? Do, uh, different race or ethnic identities, um, trigger or, uh, correlate with different experiences, things like that. And uh, they were really interested in that kind of work. And so they chose to bring me on so we could continue to ask those questions and evaluate those projects. And I still get to do things like professional development. I still get to do things like um, like write and like do this podcast and do all sorts of other things to stay engaged uh, with education. And so I'm really excited for what this new opportunity is going to be. And uh, for those of you listening, note that that doesn't really change any single thing about this podcast production. Ralph is now uh, shifting a little away from practice educator toward research, but he has been slowly crawling toward that direction his entire career. Uh, and I am still firmly planted in the, the grounds of practitioner perspective. And so we will continue to have arguments with each other about what's important and what's not. We'll read the research about education uh, and, uh, you know, we will continue to enjoy being uh, uh, slightly intoxicated as we argue with each other. So nothing's, nothing's changed. Cheers, man. Document everything. The outro was part of the audio that we lost in our recording failure, so we're going to end a little bit abruptly. We appreciate you tuning in this past season. Be safe as you start your new school years, and we'll see you for a spectacular season four next month. Discuss research.